IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm TJ O'Hara, the principal political analyst for IBN, the independent voter news. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests, so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is Kenneth C. Davis, a best-selling author of a broad array of well-researched books that provide an entertaining and insightful look into historic events that have shaped our country and the world. His second book, Don't Know Much About History, spent 35 consecutive weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and gave rise to the expansive Don't Know Much About series of books and audios. Mr. Davis joined us a few months ago to discuss his latest book, Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy, which I found to be quite thought-provoking. It led me to read a previous book that he had authored entitled More Deadly Than War, The Hidden History of the Spanish Flu in the First World War, which was extremely interesting given our current circumstance. He joins me today to share an overview of the past pandemic as compared to the present. Welcome to Deconstructed, Kenneth. Hi, TJ. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Thanks for having me. And you mentioned Don't Know Much About History. It came out 30 years ago, which is still astonishing for me to realize. And what I have done throughout my career is try and explain to people why history matters. It's not just the dates and battles and speeches, but history certainly is about how we got where we are today, and more importantly, what we can learn from the past. And I don't think there's a better example of that than this subject in our current situation. The story of the Spanish flu or the great influenza pandemic of 1918 is an extraordinary story that most Americans until recently never heard of. It was really left out of our history books. It was left out of the science books to some degree. And that's a rather extraordinary story in its own way. I've always believed that most of the most interesting stories are not in the history books. And this is a perfect example of that, how the most deadly pandemic in American history until now changed the country and what it had to do with what was going on in 1918, specifically the United States fighting in World War I. Ken, World War I began approximately in the middle of 1914 and was raging in 1918 when the country was attacked by this vicious influenza. Give us an idea of what was transpiring at that time. Well, let's go back to the beginning because you cannot talk about the Spanish influenza, the 1918 influenza, without talking about World War I. And in many ways, you can't look at the last year of World War I without understanding the flu. The two were completely related, and it was the reason that it became a worldwide pandemic, the most deadly pandemic in history since the Black Plague, by the way. The estimates, recent estimates, range from 50 to 100 million people dying worldwide in a little more than a year's time. This is not something that's spread out over decades. This is concentrated in one year. In the United States, the estimate is about 675,000 Americans died, again, in the space of about a year. For some context, that's more than all of the soldiers who died fighting in World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined. It's also around the same number of Americans who have died from HIV and AIDS over more than 30 years. So this all happened in one short space of time while we were at war, of course. So as you mentioned, 
The war begins in August 1914, the guns of August. The United States stays out of it. The president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, was neutral, wanted to maintain neutrality, did not want to get involved in this very bloody mess, was hoping to somehow negotiate and resolve it if he could. Eventually, the United States is drawn in because of Germany's behavior, and in April of 1917, the United States declares war on Germany. We had no army, so to speak. (laughs) We had no real navy, so to speak. The United States had been a small army throughout its history, and it was very true in 1917. So within the space of a year, they had to gear up having millions of men ready to cross the Atlantic and fight in Europe. That meant setting up camps all around the country called cantonments. These were training camps, essentially, and men were sent there to drill. Some enlisted, some conscripted. There was a draft. The Selective Service Act was created during World War I. So in March of 1918, as tens of thousands of mostly young men are gathered in these camps, doctors begin to notice a strange ailment. It first appeared in Kansas at a place called Fort Riley. It quickly spread to other army camps. And what was unusual about it was it looked like the flu at first, but it was much more extreme than any flu that any doctors had ever seen. And it's also unusual that it was killing otherwise healthy young men who had been fine when they checked in, farm boys from Kansas. And suddenly it was laying them low. They came in with extremely high fevers. They had body aches that said they felt like they'd been hit with baseball bats and they couldn't move. They were laying on their backs and most ominously, they were turning blue. This is a medical term called kyanosis, and it results from the body not getting enough oxygen into the lungs. Then many of them were dying. They were basically choking on their own body fluids. Doctors really had never seen anything like this. It looked like the flu at first, but was much worse than anything anyone had ever seen. Of course, the flu had been around for a long time. Now, these young soldiers kept spreading it amongst themselves on the camps, but then they were getting onto trains and going off to ports and getting onto crowded ship transports to go to Europe so that by May of 1918, about one million young American soldiers landed in France. And at around that time, the influenza pandemic starts to explode around Europe because of all the men on the move, all the refugees crowded into cities, the fact that there were fewer doctors, supply ships going around the world to all the different ports, bringing men and materials around the world. This quickly became a worldwide pandemic. And that's how it began. In the United States, it seemed to slack off in the springtime. Important for our own experience recently. But then it came back with the vengeance in the fall of 1918. And this is when it became its most deadly. I should also mention that springtime period was when it got its famous name, the Spanish influenza. Spain was a neutral nation in World War I and was non-combatant. What did that mean? It meant it was not censoring its newspapers or the newspapers weren't censoring themselves to the extent that newspapers in other combatant nations were. So the United States, Germany, England, France, you didn't see mentions of a pandemic in these spring months. The first mention comes from Madrid, and it says that the whole city is shut down, that the king of Spain is sick with this mysterious ailment. And from then on, it would became known in the English-speaking world, at least, as the Spanish flu. 
The Spanish, by the way, called it the Naples soldier. In Germany, they called it the Bolshevik pest. In Russia, they called it the Chinese disease. In South Africa, it was either the white's disease or the black disease, depending on which side of the fence you were on. So interesting to note that throughout history, people have given names to different diseases, usually blaming somebody else for them. You bring up an interesting point because in today's politically correct world, trying to even imply a country of origin is considered inappropriate. And back then, they didn't even care if they got the right country. So, Ken, we're going to take a quick break and talk about the political side of the 1918 pandemic when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest today is Kenneth C. Davis, author of a fascinating book, More Deadly Than War, The Hidden History of the Spanish Flu and the First World War. And Ken, you mentioned that there were 675,000 deaths in the United States in one year alone. I just want to put a fine point on that. We have approximately 332 million people in the United States in 2021. There were only 103 million people in the United States back in 1918. So you effectively have to more than triple the number of deaths to equate that to today. So this was a severe issue. How was it treated from a political standpoint? That's a really important point, TJDN. Just to clear that up and add to it, we'd be talking about nearly 2 million people dying today if we had numbers similar to the level of the Spanish influenza 1918 today. So that's important to keep in mind. Also, I should point out that doctors didn't understand what a virus was in 1918. You know, a lot has changed in 100 years. They had seen bacteria. They understood bacteria. They can be seen under a standard microscope. Viruses are too small to be seen by standard traditional microscopes. It would be another nearly 20 years before a virus would actually be seen. So doctors were really fighting in the dark. There were really no medications. We're talking about a time when there certainly were no antibiotics. There were vaccines for a variety of illnesses, but the medical kit of 1918 was pretty sparse. One interesting point, one of the few drugs doctors had was the miracle drug of the early 20th century, aspirin. Now, aspirin was invented by Bayer. Bayer was a German company. Germany was at war with the United States. So in a lot of the newspapers, and this gets into the politics of the pandemic, a lot of the newspapers began to claim that this virus came from Germany, that the Germans had somehow delivered these germs into movie theaters in America or put them in the water supply. Then it was suggested that Bayer aspirin was tainted. And I actually have in the book an advertisement that Bayer took out in 1918 saying Bayer is made on the banks of the Hudson River in America and it was pure and you didn't have to worry about it. But this was the level of propaganda and politics that crept into the question of the influenza pandemic in 1918. should also mention, again, the war is so central to this. Just as propaganda blamed it on the Germans, the enemy, propaganda was also keeping people from knowing the truth. Newspapers were censoring the news because they wanted to keep morale high. They didn't want people to stop going to factories or stop enlisting. They didn't want people to stop buying liberty loans and 
This was a fascinating piece of this story. Liberty loans were war bonds, essentially, and everybody in America was expected to do their part and buy war bonds. And so they would have big patriotic parades. Like in Philadelphia, they had a parade with 200,000 people crowding the streets, six, eight, seven deep, even though they knew that the virus was there. They knew there was an epidemic nearby. The health department was told not to allow this parade to go on, but they did. So politics took over, and two days after that parade, every hospital bed in Philadelphia was filled with people very, very sick, and Philadelphia lost about 12 to 15,000 people in the matter of a few weeks. This was an extraordinarily virulent, violent and very deadly influenza that affected, as I mentioned earlier in the first segment, men and women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Very different from the influenza that we're familiar with that tends to kill the elderly or the very young with poorer immune systems. This was killing people with otherwise healthy immune systems. And that's why doctors were so confounded by it. One doctor who went up to an army base near Boston looked at the young men dying and stacked like cordwood, as he said, and said, this might be a new plague. And he thought he was talking about the bubonic plague. It wasn't. It was just the flu. Share with us what transpired with the Committee on Public Information. Well, I should mention, first of all, that during this crisis, because President Wilson was so focused on the war effort and getting the troops ready and getting the tanks and the airplanes, a brand new war machine, fighter planes, the first generation of aerial combat, uniforms, meals, everything that millions of men were going to need to fight this war. And this was all hitting at the peak of the influenza in October of 1918, September, October, November of 1918, the president was told, please stop sending troops to Europe. But it was the last push of the offensive that was meant to topple Germany. And the president and General Pershing in Europe, the uh, supreme commander of the United States forces, did not want to let up. So they kept pushing men onto these boats, which as one person described them, became floating coffins because men were getting sick and dying on the boats even before they reached Europe. That's a sad part of this, but it reflects the idea that the government was completely intent upon the war effort and the idea of taking care of the public health was really left up to local public health departments, local mayors, states. There was no federal effort in the sense that we would think of today to forestall this pandemic that killed so many Americans. It's quite an astonishing difference in our time to look back at how this health emergency was treated as opposed to what we've seen today. And to keep the money flowing, the Committee on Public Information really generated a tremendous amount of high-pressure propaganda in the form of... That's right. And that's what, that, that was all designed to sell these war bonds. They had uh, something called four-minute men. These are guys who would go into every movie theater, church service, YMCA, and they would go into offices, and they would deliver a four-minute spiel about why you had to do your part and buy Liberty Bonds. It was a very, very high-pressure campaign campaign supported by propaganda posters, quite beautiful posters in many respects. And you can see them. The Library of Congress has a wonderful collection of the World War I Liberty Loan posters. And I mentioned the parade in Philadelphia. That was the fourth of four or five Liberty Loan drives that were meant. But this was more than just high pressure salesmanship. 
This is a matter of loyalty. You were suspect if you didn't do your part and buy a Liberty Loan bond. If they came into your office and you weren't willing to commit to buying this, you were all of a sudden seen as somewhat suspect. Your loyalties, your patriotism were into question. So there was more than just a high-pressure sales pitch. It was about being a loyal American. And I think there's an interesting parallel because the Seditions Act was passed. So you had the government machine pushing propaganda to keep the war effort going. And the Sedition Act came out and said that you couldn't utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of the government in the United States. And we hear about the Sedition Act even today. That's right. It was passed at a time when, of course, the sense of isolationism and fear of foreigners was elevated very high. And that would have a continued impact well after the war was over. And perhaps we can discuss that in a little bit. But yeah, this was the mood of tremendous fear and uncertainty that existed in the country, both because of the war and because of the pandemic, people did not really understand. No one had seen anything like this in American history before. There had been epidemics before and usually more localized. Philadelphia in 1793, for instance, had a terrible yellow fever epidemic while it was the national capital. Washington and Congress had to leave Philadelphia for a period, sort of abandoning the city for some period. So America had seen this before. New York had had its famous typhoid problems and cholera was well established, although cholera had been figured out by then. And in the book, by the way, More Deadly Than War, there's a chapter in the back that talks about pandemics through history and how science has responded to this. And one of the most fascinating pieces of that is the discovery of how cholera was being spread by a tainted water in a public well in London. And eventually someone figures that out, shuts down that well and ends the cholera problem. And that's when people begin to realize we can't mix our drinking water with our sewage water. A fairly a momentous decision in civilization. And interestingly enough, the end of the war also propagated an expansion, didn't it? That's right. The end of the war, which of course came on November 11th, 1918, Armistice Day, ended the war, but it certainly didn't end the flu. But it certainly also continued to build this sense of we've been through something terrible. We're not going to go through that again. And so that led to a period of intense isolationism, xenophobia to a degree. Some of our most restrictive immigration laws were passed in the immediate aftermath of World War I and the Spanish flu. The idea of keeping out the dirty, dangerous, diseased foreigners was part of that. And so we saw immigration acts very, very stern to the point of keeping mostly Eastern Europeans and Italians, by the way, were singled out in that period, as well as Asians. Of course, the United States has always gone through periods of xenophobia and keeping out certain groups of immigrants. We like to have this idea that we are a melting pot, but in fact, that's not what the history shows. We've often been, particularly in times of stress like this, looked to really shut down the country. 
And that was partly reflected in the immigration laws that came about. It was also the beginning of the period of the first Red Scare about Bolshevism because the Soviet Union had been created during World War I and people were now afraid of socialists, Bolshevists, communists. And that was another reason that Eastern Europeans were being selectively kept out of the country. That's where the dangerous ideas were coming from. Amazing. Well, Ken, we're going to take another quick break and talk about what we've learned or should have learned from the 1918 pandemic when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is Kenneth C. Davis, author of a fascinating book, More Deadly Than War, the hidden history of the Spanish flu and the First World War. Ken, what brought the 1918 pandemic to an end? You know, it's a really important and good question. There was no answer to that question for a very long time, and it it still is in the realm of speculation rather than certainty. But the general view is that the influence of 1918 It continued well into 1919. In fact, President Wilson himself got sick in 1919. I talk about that in the book. And maybe as far as into 1920, but the death rates went much further down. A degree of herd immunity had been achieved, perhaps. But also, it's been suggested that this virus burned through all the available fuel, just the way a forest fire keeps burning until there are no more trees left. This virus attacked a certain group and really wiped them out in many respects. This was a period in which, and this just happened again, a period in which life expectancy went down in the United States. And it wasn't because 100,000 men had died in the war. It was because nearly 700,000 people had died of influenza. We know a lot more today than we did 100 years ago. But when I wrote this book, it was published in 2018 for the 100th anniversary of the influenza pandemic and the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. The obvious question people asked was, can it happen again? And I said at that time, of course it can happen again. And most likely it's not a question of if, but when. I had no idea when I said that that two years later, we would be in the midst of something this extreme that we seem to have really missed so many of the lessons of 1918. And that's really a tragedy as far as I'm concerned. Do we have any particular advantages or disadvantages over that period of time? Well, certainly. First of all, we know what a virus is. (laughs) As I mentioned, we, we couldn't see one in 1918. Now we know what a virus is. We know how it lives. We have DNA now. We didn't have DNA in 1918 or understand DNA. In fact, several years ago, the Spanish influenza virus was identified and actually replicated in a laboratory. So they knew exactly what kind of a virus it was. It was classified as an H1N1 avian virus, a bird flu, if you will, in simple language, that somehow made the leap. 
And this is always the question, how do these viruses get from the animal kingdom into the human kingdom? Someone is bitten by an animal, someone eats an infected animal. We don't always know. It's a very difficult process to understand. So we don't know to this day actually where the influenza of 1918 originated. Chances are an Asian avian Asian bird of some kind, but we don't know that for sure. The other thing I would say is that we have so many drugs today, so many treatments, so many hospitals. You know, in 1918, there were very, very few doctors in America. There were very, very few hospitals in America outside of the largest cities. So the country was really woefully unprepared for that disaster. And as we spoke about earlier in the segment, there was very little in the doctor's kit. There were no antiviral drugs. Aspirin was about the only thing that they had, and some people were afraid of aspirin. They also knew what we know today, that the way to avoid this is the same way in 1918 as it is in 2020, avoiding large crowds, wearing a mask, and the masks of 1918 were not especially effective, but they did use them. Avoiding crowds, good sanitation. These are basics of any virus, and they apply to in the common cold or the influenza virus or the coronavirus. So those are lessons well learned. But they understood the, the need for avoiding crowds and fresh air and ventilation. Doctors back then said the best treatment for people was decent food, fresh air, ventilation, and plenty of liquids, kind of what your mother would do for you <laughs> at a certain time, you know. And many of the people who did best were people who just got decent, good, tender, loving care, usually from a nurse, which is another interesting aspect of this. The war and the fever, uh, the flu combined really changed the nursing profession. Before 1918, women were not welcomed into nursing the way we traditionally think of nursing. It was really something that was a man's profession because women were considered too delicate, first of all, to be nurses. And second of all, my goodness, it was the Victorian era. You didn't allow women to see naked men. So that was a real transformation of the nursing profession, as well as the role of women in America. I think that's one of the kind of long-lasting and overlooked impacts of the influenza. Women had gone off to, first of all, serve as nurses fighting the flu, going to the front trenches in the war in some cases, and they were not going to accept their old status when they came back. So it's no accident, I think, no coincidence, that we get the suffrage amendment right after World War I and the Spanish influenza. Women had to change their role in society, and they were not going to accept being second-class citizens. Can what should we have learned from the 1918 pandemic, but unfortunately don't appear to have learned? Well, I think there are three central lessons, if I can, TJ, that all come out of some of the things that we've talked about. And the first is that lies, propaganda, censorship are deadly. In 1918, there was a lot of lying, there was a lot of censorship, and certainly propaganda, as we've talked about. The idea was Germans had done this. Lying in the sense of telling people it's just the flu, it's just the grip. Doctors knew it was worse, but they were trying to prevent panic. 
the censorship of the newspapers, some of it self-imposed as newspapers didn't want to hurt their advertising revenues by talking about this and the fear that it would shut down businesses. And so all of those lessons are very important. The second is the question of priorities, or I should say misplaced priorities. As we've talked about, the war effort was the single most important thing as far as the federal government was concerned. They left dealing with the pandemic to localities. President Wilson, General Pershing were only concerned with keeping those men going over to fight, keeping the war factories open. So even though we knew those things were dangerous, we kept going because the priority was the war effort. And related to that is the idea of ignoring science. President Wilson was told to stop sending these men. At one point, the adjutant of the U.S. Army actually stopped the draft because he didn't want any more young men going into these camps that were such tremendous breeders of infection. Science told the man in Philadelphia, don't allow this parade to go on, but the priority continued to be selling those war bonds, meeting your quotas, doing what you were supposed to do to be a loyal, good American doing your part. And so even though he was specifically told not to allow that parade, Philadelphia's health commissioner allowed it to go on against the advice of all science. So we ignore science at great peril to the U.S. public health. And I think those lessons have largely been not forgotten, but completely ignored in the past year. And we will probably be hitting near 500,000 American deaths. I don't think that most people would have possibly imagined that a year ago when this began. But here we are. I think a lot of the lessons from 1918 were either ignored deliberately or consciously for, again, misplaced priorities, ignoring science, very, very dangerous. And I think we've seen exactly what the toll of those choices is. Incredible. Well, Ken, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and get a copy of More Deadly Than War, The Hidden History of the Spanish Flu in the First World War? Well, thank you, TJ, first of all, for having me on again. The best place to learn about me and my work is my website, which is don'tknowmuch.com. There are links there to buy all of my books from the variety of online sellers. You can also always go to the library. I'm a lover of the library and certainly your local bookstore. And these are books, by the way, this one and the Strongman book recently that are somewhat aimed at younger readers. But I find that older readers get a lot out of these books. And it's a great way to have a family conversation about these very, very important subjects. Well, Kenneth C. Davis, it's always a pleasure to read your books and have you on the show to discuss them. And More Deadly Than War is no exception. The last time you were on, I closed with George Santayana's quote, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Once again, I find myself thinking of those words. Now, Ken, don't take this the wrong way, but I hope I never have you on again to discuss a pandemic. But seriously, thanks for giving us a glimpse into the 1918 pandemic, and thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. Well, TJ, thank you again for having me. This is a really important subject, like all of history, and it once again proves that history does matter. Thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts. 
on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.